beginning to read at verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just shut itself off. There we go. Let's try that again. How many people in this room have ever heard a sermon on that passage or been taught about that passage? Now, our first instinct is to say, yes, of course I've heard a sermon on this passage, or I've been taught at Sunday school about this passage. It's a great story. The paralytic brought by his friends to Jesus, lowered through the roof because the house is so full. That's not that passage, though, is it? The reality is that most of us will at some point have been taught from Mark's Gospel. I've got lots of sermons from Mark's Gospel on that passage, lots of Sunday school lessons on that passage, but not so many from Matthew. In fact, I've never preached on this passage. Because Matthew's doesn't have all that detail about the house and the crowd and the roof, and we can get into the story that way. All we hear from Matthew is that some men brought their paralysed friend to Jesus lying on a mat. Matthew doesn't bother with all the scene setting because he has one aim in mind. To answer the question that the disciples asked in the boat at the end of the passage we looked at last week, who is this? The disciples were just beginning to realise that Jesus was more than just a teacher. He wasn't just another rabbi. He wasn't even a rabbi who was teaching in a new way. Jesus was something different. The events of chapter 8 have been pushing the disciples towards the inevitable conclusion of Jesus' real identity. This passage lays it out for all to see, and yet they don't which we'll come back to later. Matthew's grouped together a collection of healing stories around the disciples' experience on the boat that we looked at last week with the aim that we would recognise Jesus for who he really is, the Son of God. But in too many churches, they have been used collectively to prove that A, if you're sick, it's because of some unconfessed sin, And B, if you have confessed that sin and are still not healed, it's because of a lack of faith. 
the prosperity gospel that says that if you really have faith and are free from unconfessed sin, you will be healthy and wealthy is utter rubbish. But when taken at face value, that could seem to be what these passages are saying. We've seen people commended for their faith and rebuked for lack of it. And in our passage tonight, we see a man forgiven and then healed. The implication perhaps being that it was his sin that was causing the sickness that, that paralysed him. But that is a very one-dimensional way of, read, of understanding what is really going on here. So let's briefly have a look at what's wrong with reading the passage that way, and then we'll look at what is actually going on. So firstly, does lack of healing mean lack of faith? Well, to answer this, we need to look, I think, at exactly who displays faith in this and in previous passages. In the story of the centurion's servant, who is commended for their faith? The centurion. We don't know anything at all about the servant beyond the fact that he's sick. But we do know that the centurion has faith. Jesus commends him for that and heals his servant. So faith is involved but not necessarily the faith of the one needing healing. In tonight's passage, who has faith? Well, it's not really clear, but it's definitely not just the paralytic. It might not even be him at all. Matthew says, some men brought brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat when Jesus saw their faith. Who is they? Is it the friends? Is it the friends and the paralytic? It's really not clear. But what is clear is Jesus saw the faith of more than just the person who needed healing. And then he responded. However, what about the boat in the middle of the storm? Who had faith then? Definitely not the disciples, that's for sure. Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. And yet he calms the storm. Jesus stepping in clearly isn't entirely dependent on the person in question having enormous faith. What these passages do show us, though, is that our prayers for the lost do count. God does hear us when we cry out on behalf of those who don't know him. What about sickness being a result of sin? Well, on this, I'm afraid to say that I think it's right. Sickness is a result of sin. But what I'm not saying is that if you are sick or suffering in any way, it is a direct result of your sin, necessarily. I don't believe God uses sickness to punish us. But sickness and suffering are not part of the natural created order as God intended it to be. In the Garden of Eden, no one had arthritis or dementia or cancer or a cough or a cold or a bad back or whatever else it is that you're suffering from. The sickness and suffering in this world are not part of what God intended for us. But when sin entered the world, it broke everything and sickness and suffering followed. Sickness and suffering are the result of sin but not necessarily your sin. When Jesus performed miracles of healing, he was restoring what was lost when sin corrupted what God had created. So this passage isn't saying, if you're not healed, you don't have faith, and if you're not healed, it's because you're sinful. 
But what is this passage saying? Well, Jesus says three things to the paralytic brought by his friend, and it's those three things that I want to think about. He says, take heart, your sins are forgiven, and get up and walk. Take heart, your sins are forgiven, and get up and walk. Three phrases, each of which adds something to what is going on here. We're going to start with what is the hub of this passage. Your sins are forgiven. Everything else that happens hangs on that phrase. And it's the thing that the teachers of the law, the scribes, have a problem with. Why were they even there? The crowds that had gathered around Jesus came bringing their sick to be healed or came to hear him teach because they'd heard him before. They wanted to know what he had to say. They wanted to learn from this rabbi who was teaching in a new way. The scribes had no intention of learning from him. They were just waiting for him to do or say something that would get him into trouble. Later in the Gospels, we see them, along with the Pharisees, setting traps for him, twisting words and trying to catch him out. They were confident that he was going to trip himself up. And I'm absolutely certain that Jesus is aware of this. It's clear from these few verses that he knows what they're thinking. He can hear the cogs working as they process what he's saying. And so he turns the tables on them. Rather than playing into their hands, allowing them to set a trap, he just challenges them to confront him. He knows what they will think when he makes his announcement of forgiveness to this man, when he declares that his sins are dealt with. Matthew tells us that when he speaks, the scribes think to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. They're wrong, of course, but they're also partly right He's not blaspheming, but the inference they have drawn from what he says is that Jesus is claiming to be God. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. They know and they spend their entire lives teaching that only God can forgive sins. They don't say anything out loud. But Jesus knows what's in their hearts. But before we think about what Jesus does to silence them, even before they open their mouths... Why are these four words so significant at this time? Up to this point in Israel's history, only God can forgive sins, but that forgiveness carries a cost. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Everyone in that room would know that. The sacrificial system was the only way that Israel could have right relationship with God. And those sacrifices needed to be made over and over again. It was an imperfect system that could only deal with human sinfulness by repeated shedding of blood. Now after many of his healing miracles, Jesus instructs the person involved to go to the temple, present themselves to the priests. They needed to fulfill the requirements of the law to be accepted back into society. But when he declares this man to be forgiven, he doesn't tell him to go to the temple. He doesn't tell him to go and make sacrifice to make himself right with God or to confirm his forgiveness. It seems at first glance that this man's forgiveness suddenly breaks the requirement for shedding of blood. But how can that be? Well, it's at this point that we see that the cross works both backwards as well as forwards. In Hebrews 11, we're presented with a long list of faithful believers, all of whom are held up as righteous, not because of the sacrifices they made time and time again, but because of their faith. 
The sacrificial system they operated on merely pointed them to the one who would one day deal with the sin of all mankind through the shedding of his own blood. That one perfect sacrifice. The sin of this man lying on his mat at the feet of Jesus wasn't dealt um, through the blood of bulls or goats. It was dealt with by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross on a day still to come. But the listening scribes hear none of that. They simply hear a man claiming to be God and it stirs up something in them much more than just an intellectual disagreement with him. Jesus asks them why they are entertaining evil thoughts in their hearts. Their response to his claims is an emotional one. They are angry. How dare he make such a statement? Who does he think he is? Jesus knows exactly who they think he thinks he is. And he goes on to confirm it for them. He points out that it's actually quite easy to say your sins are forgiven. I can stand here now and declare it for all of you. Much harder to prove whether I'm right or not. No one can actually argue with Jesus because they have no way of knowing whether or not what he's saying is true. There is no test that can be done to confirm that someone's sins are forgiven. But Jesus has a suggestion. What's easier, he asks them, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Is the question though. How does the healing of this man of his paralysis prove that Jesus has authority to forgive sins? Unless Jesus is actually saying that this man's sickness is a direct result of his sin, how does one prove the other? How does this healing help? Well, Jesus proves that he has the authority to deal with sin by dealing with its effects. As we've already said, sickness is a symptom. Sin, in general, is the cause. He's not saying, look, he's obviously been forgiven because he's not being punished with this sickness anymore. He's saying, I can prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins by proving to you that I have the authority to nullify its effects. We know that the cross is all about dealing with sin, but the Old Testament sees it as dealing with the effects of sin as well. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. As sin is dealt with, the pain and suffering that it brought into this world are dealt with. Now we won't fully see the reality of that until Jesus comes again. The death throes of sin are still seen in the suffering of this world. But whatever we are facing, whatever suffering comes our way, we can be confident that it won't last. It is only temporary, no matter how long-term it feels in this life. As Paul describes it, they are light and momentary troubles, even when they don't feel like it. When Jesus heals the paralytic, he's declaring the fullness of the restoration that awaits us as redeemed people. The suffering and pain of this life will not follow us into eternity because the cause of that pain has no place there. 
And so we can get up and walk, even through our pain, because we know it will pass. And we can also take heart. As Jesus starts his conversation with this man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. The word translated here as take heart is tharseo, and it occurs three times in Matthew. In our Bibles, it's also translated as take courage. It means be of good cheer, take comfort, have courage, take heart. In Matthew, we find it here. We find it slightly later in um, chapter 9 when the woman reaches out and just touches Jesus' robe rather than speak to him. And again in chapter 14 when the disciples are terrified at the sight of Jesus walking towards them on the water. Each time it seems that Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. You can come into my presence without fear. To the disciples, he says, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's me. I'm here. To the woman in the crowd, he says, you don't have to hide from me. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. To the paralytic on his mat, he says, don't worry. You know you're a sinner. I know you're a sinner. I know that you know that I know you're a sinner. But there's nothing to fear. There's no condemnation here because you are forgiven. As it says in Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Take heart. We can approach the throne of grace because our sins have been forgiven. We have nothing to fear as Jesus approaches. Take heart, have courage, come into his presence. That word tharseo only appears once in John. When Jesus is talking to the disciples shortly before his arrest, in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You are forgiven. Your troubles are only temporary, so take heart, don't fear. He has overcome the world and defeated sin. But this passage shows us that it's possible to hear what Jesus has to say, to see him perform amazing miracles and still miss the truth of who he really is. The scribes missed it. They heard the underlying message in what he said, but dismissed him as a blasphemer. But did you notice that the crowd missed it too? They thought it was amazing. They were astounded by what he did. Matthew says they were filled with awe and they praised God for it. But just look at that last verse again. Is it stuck there? When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, who had given such authority to man who had given such authority to man. They were so close to figuring out who Jesus was, but a million miles away at the same time. They knew that only God had the authority to forgive sins, to heal the paralyzed, but they just didn't seem to be able to join the dots and fully see who Jesus really was. Just like the man who came to Jesus in the passage we looked at last week and called Jesus teacher. The watching crowd knew he was something special, something different, but they had no idea how special 
How different. There were some around who knew who he was. That we missed a chunk out, the end of chapter 8. And at the end of chapter 8, Jesus heals two men possessed by demons. And as he approaches, those demons say, what do you want from us, son of God? The enemy knows who Jesus is. The enemy's afraid. Some in that crowd would come to see who Jesus was in the following years. Others would never fully get it. The scribes and the Pharisees would hear it and would refuse to accept it. And so would miss out on that peace that Jesus promised in John. Without faith in the real Jesus, it's impossible to rest in the peace that can only come from knowing that he has overcome the world. But to those who recognize who Jesus really is and where his authority comes from, he would still say, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Walk.